Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks again for joining us. So for some time, we have been in a series. Uh, we studied through the Gospel of John, uh, looking at John's account of his firsthand experience of uh, Jesus, of, of life walking with Jesus, of his crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, and we continued that series with uh, the story continues as we explored kind of the story as it developed, as the Holy Spirit came, as the church began, explored the ways the church is, uh, the church, that is the global church, engages in the mission of God. Uh, and that's been a beautiful thing. As we considered new sermon series, uh, we considered, well, well, it's probably time to cycle back into something in the Old Testament, and there is a particular story and man whose, uh, whose name I just couldn't get off my mind as we were considering, and it is a story of a man named David. Now, David is, for some of us, a fairly familiar character. Uh, he's someone that if we grew up in Bible classes, we've heard about David and Goliath, and we've heard some of these iconic stories about a man named David. And uh, for, for those of us that didn't grow up in the church, uh, he may or may not be a familiar character. But here's the risk that kept running through my mind as I kept feeling like, no, David is, is where we go next. Uh, the risk was something familiar is that quite often uh, our, our eyes glaze over. Uh, the familiarity results in very little engagement in the things happening in the text. Um, so my prayer for us as we dive into the book of David, as we consider the story of this man named David, who uh, played a remarkable role in the life of Israel, uh, my prayer is that we will see it anew that we will hear it anew, that God will open our ears to hear the things we have, uh, that we can consider in our day, time, in our context, our workplaces, the neighborhoods in which we live, that we get to consider the story of David anew and ask questions of what has God, God done through the life of David and what is God doing through our lives as we learn and as we grow. So I might be familiar, but we pray to hear it anew uh, today. Let me ask you this question as, we're, as we begin to engage on the subject of David. Um, by what criteria is a person to be defined? Is it by their action? Is it by um, uh, their history, the things that they've accomplished in their life? Is it by something of physical appearance or nationality? Like, by what criteria is a person to be defined? I think this is an incredibly complex question, one that we'll be asking as we engage uh, in 1 Samuel 16 today. Um, but I think it's an incredibly complicated question that we actually engage uh, often subconsciously, but we encounter on a regular basis in our day-to-day lives. How will this person be defined that I have come in contact with? I remember as a youth pastor uh, having to ask this question in a very distinct way uh, many times, but one very distinct moment. Um, as I was introduced to a gentleman in the teen room, teens are milling about, uh, we're about to get started with class, and I was told, hey, I think this guy uh, might might want to get involved in youth ministry. And I said, awesome, so good to meet you. And we had a few minutes to talk there, and in the few minutes that we talked, I came uh, to, to, or I discovered, he told me that um, he just got off out of prison uh, from a 15-year stint for murder. 
And, uh, and, and I remember in that moment, being, I mean, let's be honest, that's going to throw up some red flags. You're going to start to ask some questions and wonder, uh, was, you know, how did this introduction just take place and why? I came to know this uh, man um, as a good friend in years to come. And uh, he did volunteer and work in remarkable ways in that. Uh, but it was one of those moments where as I stepped away from that conversation and began to get to process the things happening, I had to ask the question of, so how will I come to know this individual? Like, will it be um, uh, incarceration that defines him in my mind? Or, or will I come to know him in new and deeper ways? I did. And it's a remarkable story that would take you hours to tell, so I will not go into his life. But it is a beautiful, beautiful story. Instead, we're going to dive into the life of David. And I want to give a little bit of the background and the precursor as we introduce this new series so that we have some context of what's happening. Uh, about 3,000 years ago, sounds like a good book, like a good story, right? Um, about 1,000 years B.C., 1,000 years before Christ would come, uh, Israel was in a fairly good place. Israel was the nation that God had come to, and he had said, I will bless you that you can be a blessing to all nations. He said, through Israel will flow my blessing into all of the world. And so God promised Israel a land. They would be a known nation. They would have this promised land. And uh, at this point in Israel's history, uh, they have their promised land. Things are going pretty well. Um, this is about uh, 1060 BC. Um, Samuel, a prophet and a judge in Israel, is kind of ruling over the nation right now. Uh, he, um, through God's guidance, is uh, helping to rule this nation. Now, Samuel's getting old, and the nation's starting to worry, well, what happens next? We're finally in the stable place. We have our own land. Things have been going well under Samuel's direction. We've been uh, pursuing God pretty well, and God seems to be in favor of us. So, But what happens when Samuel dies? And so the nation comes to Samuel, and they say, we need you to appoint a king over us. Uh, they say, Samuel, the next step for us is a king, because all the other nations have kings, and I don't know, it seems to be going well for them. And uh, God uh, argues with Israel on this point, and you can go back and read it in First Samuel chapter 8, and, and feel free to read the backstory uh, in the week to come, but God argues with them or, or warns them. He says, once you have a king, um, he's going to tax you for his own benefit. His officials are going to get your choice land and your crops. He says, once you have a king, he's going to send your children off to war and uh, to fight his battles. And eventually, uh, the power of this position as king will result in you as a nation being enslaved by cruel rulers. And at that time, you'll, you'll call out to me. But Israel, kind of belligerent, kind of stubborn, as uh, they often are painted in their own uh, narrative found in the Old Testament, they say, no, it's time for a king. So the first king came into Israel. His name was Saul. And uh, Saul had a pretty good run of about 40 years as king. Uh, he generally listened to God, and he ruled the people relatively well until later in that season. And at about year 40, uh, Saul began to reject uh, God's commands 
to overlook the uh, instructions that God was giving him as king. And so God, as we enter 1 Samuel chapter 16 today, has has said through Elijah, or through Samuel this prophet, he has said uh, a new king is coming, uh, that, that Saul no longer has my favor, uh, but a new king is coming. And the question for Israel becomes, okay, they've only had the one king, only Saul. For the last 40 years, uh, we've known what it's like to have a king. His name was Saul. Uh, what does succession look like at this point in Israel's story? Like, who is it? They don't have a history of the son, the eldest son of the king be- becoming the next king. Uh, Jonathan, a guy we read about in the text, uh, might have made an excellent king. Uh, He would be a logical successor to his father, Saul, who was on the throne. Uh, There's many politicians and uh, many people high up in the ranks that worked alongside Saul that would know the inner workings of the nation of Israel that would have been very logical picks for king. But in our text today, God is going to send Samuel to the most unlikely of places to find the most unlikely of kings. First Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, uh, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Saul will no longer be king over Israel. Samuel finds himself in this precarious place. God's favor no longer rests on Saul. A new king is about to be anointed, and Samuel is in this awkward and quite risky position of anointing a new king while Saul still sits on the throne. But they have devised a plan, and he will go and offer sacrifices. He will meet this man, Jesse, and his sons, and there a new king will be anointed. A new process, a new chapter in Israel will be opened. And yet, uh, he's gone to the most interesting of places. Does the name Bethlehem sound familiar to some of us today? Uh, he's gone to find this king in the, uh, the, in the house of Jesse in a place called Bethlehem, which is in fact the town where Jesus will be born, uh, which is in fact the town that Jesus, uh, about a thousand years later, his family will be called back to the, the um, city of his ancestors uh, where they're taking a census. So all people from this household will be headed back to Bethlehem, and it was there that Jesus will be born. So God sent Samuel to Bethlehem, to this quiet little rural town of farmers and shepherds, right? And he says, there you will find the next king. Verse 6, the story continues. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward 
appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse had uh, Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven, uh, had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel looks at uh, Jesse's first son, and he's like, yeah, that guy looks like a king. Do you know how often we uh, look at a person and immediately draw conclusions? Like, I don't know if you can recognize that in your life, but uh, would you believe me if I told you that on a, on a continual basis, our sight is overpowering our logic, that our initial reactions, often subconscious, are predetermining the ways that we will engage with the person? We see a person and immediately we begin to, with these subconscious split second judgments, Uh, judge uh, potential and judge character based on color of skin. There's an incredible book that I've spoken on in more detail in the past, so I won't go into a ton of detail on it today. But um, it's called Unclean by a man named Richard Beck. And he talks about uh, humans' disgust reflex. And that is a reflex that, in theory, would keep us from eating food that is spoiled or disgusting, right? So we have this disgust reflex. If something goes into our mouth that is unhealthy, uh, that could harm us, um, then we will repel it. Uh, It's just a natural instinct and reflex in our bodies. Well, as a psychologist, Richard Beck um, uh, has studied in depth um, and uh, and come to the conclusion that this same disgust reflex is part of the reasons we so quickly judge people, uh, that we have subconscious disgust reflexes um, to situations, to people in moments that will uh, determine in drastic ways the ways we will move forward in relationship with any given person. You see, here's, here's the more broad idea, and I want to show you a quick video about the subject. The more broad idea is this. Our eyes can deceive us, right? Uh, the things that we see, like when Samuel looks at the first son of Jesse, he's like, yep, that has got to be the one. His eyes are beginning to deceive him. Because he sees a beautiful beautiful physical appearance, whatever it is that a king looks like, he's strong and he's handsome and he's tall. I don't know what those things are in Israel at this time. But he sees this man and he assumes this is good, but our eyes can be deceiving. Years ago, I saw this fascinating video, and um, uh, it's um, by Dove, the like soap company. And um, I guess I need to say, we do not officially endorse Dove nor do we require our members to use that product only. I don't know. Uh, there we go. All disclaimers out of the way. It is a commercial. Uh, it's a very good one. And it, um, it speaks to our eyesight and the way we view things and people. So the idea behind the video is that um, our eyes can deceive us. Uh, I think this is true, like in our text today and in Richard Beck's book and many other places, of the ways we view other people. But this raises to our attention another reality in this um, in the text and the exploration of the complexity of a person uh, that quite often our view of ourselves are not very proper either. Right? Um, we allow ourselves to define ourselves by a single trait, a single decision we've made in life. 
And in so doing, whether it's while we're looking at others or looking at ourselves, how often do we find ourselves, based on the things that we see, disqualifying? Disqualifying others, disqualifying ourselves from the very things that God might be working towards. Let's get back to our text a little bit. God said this, don't consider his appearance or his height. He's not the one. You see, people look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I was curious about this. What is, what is this question of God looking at the heart as opposed to looking at the exterior? I mean, what exactly are they trying to describe as they speak of the heart here? And I don't know that I have it all figured out, but I did find in a blog this description of the heart in the context of this passage. It is the seat of our passions and deepest desires. It reflects what matters most to us and shows what we're willing to live and to die for. It said this, I'll read it one more time because I think this is important. God looks at the heart, and it defines, this blog defined it in this way. The heart is the seat of our passions and deepest desires. It reflects what matters most to us and shows what we're willing to live and to die for our passions, and our deepest desires. God says, I don't look at whether or not you have freckles, right? I don't don't look at any of those things. God looks at our heart, our deepest passions and desires. And in our text today, as he comes, he sees uh, beautiful uh, figures that could make just like just a remarkably gorgeous king sitting on a throne, right? And God says, those aren't what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those whose passions and deepest desires reflect my own, or in the case of David, are are leaning into my own, right? That David's desires and passions would be for the things of God. So seven sons have come by Samuel, and in each case, God has said, nope, that's not the one. Verse 11, um, Samuel says, uh, he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? Well, it doesn't say well, but this is what Jesse's saying right now. He's like, ah, well, there is the youngest. He's tending to the sheep. Uh, do you know what it's like to be a younger sibling? How many younger siblings do we have in the, in the room today? Yeah. You know, I grew up uh, in a family of three boys, and uh, I was the oldest, um, so maybe I don't understand this text as well as some in the room. You know, in general, my brothers and I had a great relationship. Um, we used to play super fun games. Like one day my brother was playing baseball in the backyard with his buddy, and uh, my other brother and I opened the window and shot him with BB guns. And, you know, he didn't think it was fun, but he was just missing the joy in it. I don't know. Like, we, we thought it was really fun. It was a super fun game. So I don't have tons of experience being the younger brother. Um, David in this story, though, uh, he is the younger brother. And you can kind of see how he's being treated as such. Even dad's like, oh, we don't need to bring him out. Remember, Jesse has just consecrated them, right? And he's brought them in to make the sacrifice with the family. And David has been left entirely out of this process. Because Jesse, dad, knows that, no, it's not him. He's, he's the little one. He's the runt of the litter. He's got work to do. We'll leave him there. One of my older sons will be the choice for king. So, I've got one more son, and he's out tending the sheep. The story continues, middle of verse 11. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. 
He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Again, the physical description, which I'm kind of surprised by in the context. But uh, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. From that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel went to Ramah. God has chosen the next king of Israel, the second king in Israel's history. After, Samuel, after Saul ceased to uh, follow the Lord's will, a new one will be chosen. And he'll be chosen from a little rural village called Bethlehem. He'll be a shepherd. The new king has no experience or training in ruling a nation, but God looks into his heart and sees someone who has God's interests in mind. And, and so the end of the text is incredibly important. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. He didn't grow up in the courts. He didn't know how the politics of the nation worked or how to work out any of the great uh, questions that would be asked of him on a, on a nationwide level. However, he knew shepherding. He knew how to care for something, and he had a a heart after God's own heart. And God said, this is what will qualify David. You know, earlier we were talking about how we view people and sometimes make these split-second and subconscious judgments about people when we see them. And here we see God acting upon the heart of an individual. And I want to raise our awareness today uh, to this. People are complex. Well, we can look at a person and think of race, or we can think of gender, or we can think of social status, or wealth, or any of these things based on the things they're wearing or the things that we're seeing. Uh, People are incredibly complex and are not to be defined by a single moment or a single decision in their lives. We do the same with ourselves. Sometimes we define ourselves by a single trait or a single moment or decision that we've made in life. But people are complex. As we continue this story and this journey in the life of David, we're going to find incredible complexity to his life. All we know right now is he was an unlikely choice to be the next king of Israel, and yet God knows in his heart he has found the man to lead the people. But David will be an incredibly complex character. He'll be known uh, in, in Israel's history books as the man after God's own heart, right? A beautiful title for this man, David. Uh, man, would I love to be known as that, right? Um, he'll also, uh, David will also uh, take another man's wife and then have that man murdered to cover up his tracks, Right, where's the disparity in those two things? The man after God's own heart and a murderer and a man who took the wife of another man as his own, right? Uh, this is David, an incredibly complex character. He will repent and he will repent well for the things that he's done. We see again a glimpse of that man after God's heart. He will generally rule justly in Israel, in what's known as Israel's golden age, these 40 years that David will rule. And yet, no one of these attributes alone will define who this man David is. Wouldn't it be easy to look at the worst and to condemn? 
Or, or maybe we could gloss over that, look at the best and assume that's all of him. Yet no one of these attributes will define who this man, David, is. And so it is with us and the people that we encounter on a daily basis. We pray to see people uh, not through our own prejudices. We pray to see ourselves not through our own self-criticism, but instead through God's eyes. In this text, God invites Samuel to look, and when Samuel looks, he sees the things he wants to see in a king, but God says, that's not the way I work. We'll look deeper into the complexity of humanity, and we will find a man named David, a man after God's own heart. Jesus, uh, a thousand years later, will demonstrate beautifully this idea of seeing both himself and others through God's eyes. And I'll wrap up with kind of this summary and conclusion. Uh, Jesus, who claimed to be God in human flesh, to be one with the Father, uh, perceived himself as that and yet lived humbly. And it took the posture of a servant in the ways he engaged in the world. Uh, he demonstrated this idea of seeing people not by their exterior appearance, but instead by their heart and their potential. Uh, by calling 12 ordinary and some even despised men to be his closest followers, his apostles. He called fishermen and tax collectors. He called zealots. He called people from all different segments of society, some of them incredibly despised. And he said, just come and follow me, and life will change for you and for the world, right? He, he, he looks deeper into people than their career or their look or the smell of fish on them. He validated women in ways in which the culture did not. In a culture that did not value women, Jesus spoke highly of and respectfully to and engaged women in ways that were not culturally normative. He saw and he touched and he healed lepers, people who were unclean by the legal by the laws of Israel, people that were unclean and that they were dangerous to touch because you could get their same disease. Jesus not only saw past the leprosy, but he chose to engage to heal them and even to touch them as he did so. He reached out his arms and he picked up children and placed them in his lap whom everyone else around him was saying, these kids are distractions and a problem. Jesus took the time to reach out and pick up a child and see in that child the beauty and the potential. And in fact, he would say in that moment to the people around him, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing here, you got to be a little bit more like this child. This is Jesus who saw people not on the surface level, but would go much deeper in the ways he engaged. He would, in fact, see in people an intrinsic value and potential, and he would invite them to live into that potential. Sarah read for us today Psalm 139, and as we pray that um, we can begin to perceive both ourselves and others beyond our surface level uh, interactions. Uh, we're going we're gonna to lean into this psalm that she read for us. So let's pray together. God, thank you that you have searched me, that you have searched us, and that you know us. Father, before a word will be spoken, 
that you know the things that are on our hearts, the things that we will say. Thank you, Father, that uh, we were not hidden from you, uh, but you knew us even as we were being formed in our mother's womb. So we pray today, God, search us and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Father, refine us. Let's live in the image of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, as a benediction and as a closing today, I'll share these words. So may we shy away from judging others on external or singular bases. May we see people as God does. God has searched us and he knows us. May we each be reminded of who we are in God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may we live into the life God has invited us to. Have a blessed week.